0: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's October 1st, 2012, in the small town of Machensleth, Wales. The town population is only about 2,200, and all the locals are acquainted with one another. April Jones, age 5, and her sister Jasmine, age 16, are two of the familiar faces. The five-year-old has cerebral palsy, but is frequently seen pedaling around town cheerfully on her bike. It's Monday, so Jasmine meets her mother, Coral, and sister by the rec center, where young April takes swimming lessons. After the lessons, Jasmine sees her sister home and then heads off to the youth club. Said, you will see you later I'll come take you into bed and should will leave you back. The evening weather is pleasant, so Coral allows April to play outside on their Brynagog estate with a friend. That was the last one's was Around 5 p.m., the Joneses' parents, Coral and Paul, are returning from Parents' Night at April's school. Another attendee of the event, driving in the same direction, is a 46-year-old man with a buzzed haircut. He is six feet tall and has a tattoo of a snake on his arm. He has a stepdaughter the same age as April, and she sometimes plays with two of his other daughters. But this is not the reason he's visiting the estate. After he leaves the school, he drives his blue Land Rover around the neighborhood, searching, sometimes driving along the same stretch of road. Finally, he finds what he's looking for, a 10-year-old girl who is friends with one of his daughters. He rolls down the window, and invites her for a sleepover, but she doesn't join him in the car. He drives on. The man approaches the Brynagog estate and watches April. At some point, April peels away from her friends, and he follows. April gets in the car, and it speeds off on the back roads. By October 2nd, April still has not returned. After days of searching, police began to zero in on a cottage in the village called Mount Pleasant. It was one of four houses rented or occupied by a local man named Mark Bridger.
1: We were still hoping that she'd be alive. So it was very much speeders of the essence. So you had to ensure that you were doing as much as you could, as quickly as you could, in an effort to identify where she was.
0: The inside of the house is hot and smells overwhelmingly of cleaning chemicals. A wood burner sitting in the corner of the living room is on and something is inside. Fragments of bone sit in the ashes of the burner and they are too small to have come from an adult body. There is also blood on the carpet near the burner. But the most disturbing thing in the cottage is waiting for investigators on Bridger's laptop.
2: Bridger had begun to assemble a collection of particularly nasty child pornography, as well as photographs of local children, including April and her elder sister.
0: This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Mark Bridger. Mark Bridger was born on November 6, 1965, in Carshalton, Surrey. He had a sister and a brother and excelled in high school. Forensic pathologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley and forensic psychologist Chris Carter say Bridger's family life was mostly happy.
3: There weren't any indications for me in terms of Mark Bridger's childhood or his adolescence that would indicate that he'd go on to to do something horrendous. He did seem to be an altogether very average young lad and there were no red flags. His
4: childhood was normal. He came from uh, a middle-class family. His father was a police officer, which he actually looked up to.
0: But when he went off to college, things took a turn. In 1984, Bridger failed out of his engineering program and started training to be a fireman. And he was about to have his first run-in with the law. He was convicted of
3: theft and a
0: firearms offense. And basically, the
3: the story that that he concocted around this was that he planned to go and fire an old pistol at a friend's farm, and he'd stolen a car because it was too far for him to walk, which does seem to be rather ludicrous. And the prosecution thought that actually something altogether different had gone on. He was planning to actually carry out an armed robbery
0: with this weapon and this stolen car. Bridger told friends that he dropped out of the fireman training program because he wanted a career change. But in fact, he was given two years probation and struggled to find work. So what Mark Bridger is doing from this point is he's getting used to lying, to
3: being comfortable in a lie, to maintaining a lie. And this is something he'll do throughout his life.
4: All the jobs he got, he was a bit of a failure. He failed in school, he failed in college, he failed on on whatever he wanted to do.
0: Faced with his shortcomings, Bridger lied about his upbringing, his jobs, and his entire life. Common stories he told were that he was a Royal Marine, a special ops veteran, a survival expert, a mercenary, and a doctor. Welsh journalist Kieran Jones says this was a fantasy Bridger was painting for himself.
5: There were tales that he'd been a soldier, that he'd been a lifeguard, that he might have worked in a meat factory. And when you boiled it down, you realized that nobody really knew. He was wearing military fatigues, wearing a camouflage jacket camouflage trousers, waterproof over trousers, almost like he was thought he was some kind of action man figure, you know, driving about in his Land Rover, projecting this image of himself as, I don't know, a brave father, as someone who'd, you know, done his duty for his country. And that wasn't a reality whatsoever.
0: One part of the fantasy had some truth to it. Bridger was often in many relationships and considered a womanizer. He fathered his first child in 1986, but soon left the mother to raise the child on her own. His parents, upset they could no longer visit their grandchild, had a falling out with their son. He subsequently told people his parents were dead. Bridger soon had another child with a 17-year-old woman This hopping from relationship to relationship would become a pattern, says author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell.
2: He has a total of six children with four different women, but none of those relationships seems to stick around. It was always there, gone, often with the women not really knowing a great deal about him.
3: He doesn't manage to hold down a relationship in the same way he doesn't manage to hold down a job. And when he doesn't get what he wants, he tends to start using violence.
0: Bridger's girlfriend later told the press that he beat her almost every day and hit her in the stomach when she was seven months pregnant. That relationship didn't last either. And in 1990, Bridger left London and went to Wales. He found Machensleth, a market town near the Welsh coast.
2: Tiny rural community where everyone knows pretty much everybody else, where no one would appear to be threatening in the least.
0: Bridger moved from job to job, working as a lifeguard and in an abattoir, while still telling people he had a military background.
3: I think Mark Bridger was somebody who had a significant history of failing at things, of failing at jobs, of failing at relationships, and of developing a bit of a reputation in the local community. And I think what he was doing by moving to Mahuntleth was basically starting over, wiping the slate clean, and trying to
0: control the amount of information that people had about him and his life. And Bridger continued to have a series of short, volatile relationships with women in the area. After marrying and having two more children, Bridger's new wife kicked him out and banned him from seeing his sons. In 1996, Bridger dated another local woman, one who was significantly younger than him. She was just 15 years old. He was 30. And it was here that Bridger had a brush with fate. Her older sister was dating a man named Paul Jones who, 11 years later, would have a daughter named April. In 2012, after years of failed jobs and failed relationships, Mark Bridger was living alone in the small town of Machinsleth, Wales. Forensic psychologist Chris Carter says that with the deterioration of his life, Bridger might have leaned into a peculiar proclivity.
4: So he now didn't have a job, didn't have the girlfriend with the baby, and now got away from his father and mother. So it's a triple wham there. My guess is that he was feeling extremely low. So it could be that his interest for little kids started then.
3: He does start to kind of withdraw and and spend a lot of time on his own, spends a lot of time on his, his laptop computer. And on that computer, there are images of children in the local community who are known to him. There are pictures of child abuse imagery on his laptop. He's pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, of what's legal and what's illegal, and it's all
0: becoming incredibly blurred. It would soon be evident that Bridger's interest in children wasn't just abstract, but that he had his eye on a handful in particular. Just a few miles across town from Bridger's cottage lived the Jones family, including sprightly five-year-old April. April's sister, Jasmine, describes the happy-go-lucky demeanor of the young girl.
6: April's character is really um, bubbly, really happy. Constantly smiling, constantly laughing. So, if you're ever feeling sad or down, she'd basically be there and she'd make you laugh in an instant. And she's got like a really contagious smile. Like, you just see her smile, so you'd want to smile.
0: She's just a happy, fun, bubbly little girl. April had a mild form of cerebral palsy that meant she needed to take pain medication. Even so, her constant companion was her bicycle. The bike also gave the young girl a small amount of independence. We taught her to ride a bike from a young age.
6: So she'd be on a bike constantly, so she'd never, ever be without a bike. If she wanted to go out or if we were going to go down the street to the shop, it was on her bike. You couldn't get her to walk. It was on her
0: bike and that was that. On Monday, October 1st, 2012, Jasmine met her sister and mother, Coral, at the local swimming pool. Every
6: Monday, April used to go to swimming lessons, so I'd always... Meet mum in April in the NASH centre when I got off the bus. Take April in to get changed, send her into a swimming lesson and I'd meet her afterwards. So she'd finished swimming lesson. I think it about half an hour. Went in, got a change, come back out, she's walking out. Um, went back home. I went to the youth club and I said, um, I love you, I'll see you later and I'll come take you into bed and everything. And she said, I love you
0: back. And that was the last I was with her. That evening... Coral and Paul returned to their home on the Brinagog estate from a parents' night at school. April had gotten positive feedback from her teachers, and so she was allowed to play outside later than usual.
6: It was still light that day, so I remember to let April out a little bit longer um, because of the good school report. And there was three of their friends, and her and her other friend cycled their other friend back home, and then it was just her and her friend they were coming
0: back. At around 7.20pm, it was starting to get dark, and April had not come back inside. Coral sent April's younger brother, Harley, out to get her. And then Harley came running back with the bike, saying she's gone, she's not there, um, she's been taken, and then that's when it kind of all escalated. Coral immediately called the police, and soon, an investigation was underway. Police emergency. emergency. <laughs> because I stopped been kidnapped. <laughs> oh, with the dog. Hello. on, start, can
4: you speak to somebody? Hello. And what makes you think um, the dog has well, been apparently, kidnapped? Apparently, um, she's gone off in a car with somebody. Somebody picked up in a car or something.
0: OK, what's the name of the child that's gone missing?
4: April Jones.
0: April, how old is she? Five. Reg Bevan was detective superintendent at the time and part of the investigation team.
1: When the call first comes in, Is a crime in action, in effect. So April's mum makes the initial call to say that her daughter's gone off in a vehicle. That is treated as a abduction, kidnap. And the initial response is very much to secure the area, try to identify the last person to see her and identify people who were in the area at the time.
0: Time was of the essence, especially because April needed to take her medication. The detectives were quick to question the friends April was playing with. They told police they had seen her get into a car with a stranger.
1: They gave this basic description of a small front and a large rear to a vehicle and we, they couldn't be more specific. But these are children, young children. And, but it was key piece of evidence, particularly when they talk about how she got into the right-hand side and they were quite um, sure of that. The
0: car was a
1: blue Land Rover but the most crucial feature? It had a
0: left-hand drive, not typical for the UK, where traffic drives on the left side of the road. Local reporter Kieran Jones explains that was really the only break the police had.
5: I think that was very, very quickly seized upon as something that was unusual, something that could perhaps be decisive in the investigation. Because other than that, initially, there didn't seem to be a great deal for the police to go on because she'd been seized very, very quickly, very, very discreetly with only children as witnesses.
0: But where the police were stuck, the local community stepped in. They rallied around the Jones family and assisted the police in their search for April. News of her disappearance quickly spread on social media, say Jasmine and Kieran. My is such a small town, you
6: just wouldn't think of it. I think we have a population of about Two and a half thousand, maybe a bit more maybe a bit less the amount of people that came out of the houses and just started searching of all sort of ages all sorts of ages it was just incredible to even see like they've all kind of come out just to look for my little sister and it's kind of breathtaking in a way to see the amount of people and how close mac is a close community is
5: from the very first day i think the police were using the word unprecedented in terms of the scale of the search. And that was certainly true. I remember arriving in McUntheth and immediately hearing the constant swashing of rotor blades, seeing boat teams coming in from mountain rescue, seeing cavers, every conceivable emergency service, every conceivable specialism was there very, very quickly. And then you had the public element of the search where people were splitting into small teams, dividing up an area on a map, and going out and fanning out and covering what area they could. People at the most rudimentary level going out with torches and calling April's name. So you had an unprecedented police search involving, I think in the end, dozens and dozens of forces covering dozens and dozens of square kilometers.
0: The police and volunteers from the town split into teams and searched for hours, combing the woods and thoroughly searching the back roads. But despite the exhaustive hunt, which stretched into the morning, April could not be found. The obvious conclusion was that someone in the community, someone they all knew, had abducted her. The town was in shock.
5: I remember one of the people I spoke to said it it can't have been somebody from the area because we all know one another. We all trust one another.
2: It almost defies belief when that sort of thing happens in a small rural community because somehow you immediately think that everybody knows everybody else's business and that it's impossible. How can a child disappear into thin air in a tiny Welsh village in which everybody pretty much knows everybody else? But that's the, the devil in plain sight, isn't it?
0: There wasn't a lot of evidence. But Reg Bevan says there was only one person in Machenslith with a left-hand drive car, Mark Bridger.
1: Mark Bridger was named by some of the residents living locally in the House house investigation, and then once he's been named, and when you compare the description given by the children of his vehicle, of the vehicle that April Jones got into, and then some work that we were able to do behind the scenes with the analysts, we were able to link at Land Rover Discovery to Mark Bridger, and then all of a sudden, things start to fall into place.
6: Where we used to live, he kind of lived like at the end, sort of just a bit further on. And he was kind of higher, you're right in the street, sort of thing. I didn't know his name.
0: I just knew his face. He's always in combat trousers, always. Bridger was the lead and only suspect. Despite it being a small town, he proved a hard man to find. Bridger's address was listed as multiple houses, likely the result of his many romantic affairs.
1: We had some previous addresses that we knew he'd lived at or we may still be living at, and we were sending teams of officers round to those addresses to try to locate April. And on some occasions, there was no answer. We were forcing entry into these properties with quickly searching in a hope to find us. So it was a very fast-paced, fast-moving investigation um, to try to locate him.
0: The following morning, October 2nd, Mkhinsleth awoke to a media swarm. April had now been missing for 12 hours, and the tip line was hot with people who claimed to have seen Bridger or the Land Rover.
5: It was a fast-moving, very emotional place. People were desperate. People were filled with hope, and people were galvanized to go out there and to find someone. And those people that were there generally beyond perhaps knowing the family or knowing the area or knowing them in passing, had no personal connection in a lot of cases. They wanted to go out and find a vulnerable child. And there was lots and lots of hope and just sheer determination. People saying, I can't sleep, I can't go home, I can't rest, I can't do anything while I know that somebody is out there. And that was incredibly stark and incredibly moving.
0: The police continued the manhunt hoping that finding Bridger would lead them directly to April.
1: We were still hoping that she'd be alive. So it was very much speeders of the essence. So you had to ensure that you were doing as much as you could, as quickly as you could, in an effort to identify where she was.
0: Meanwhile, Bridger had just dropped his car off at the local garage. It had suffered some damage, as if it was in a minor accident. The previous day, he'd sent angry text messages to a woman he was seeing and had tried in vain to ask out a number of other women. Things were not going well for the 46-year-old. And to make things worse, he was about to run into the search party.
5: Mark Bridger had effectively stumbled upon a search party and wished them good luck and claimed to have been out searching all night, which was, when you reflect on that, deeply, deeply troubling, um, deeply shocking.
0: Bridger walked away from them, for the time being, and the search for April entered its 19th hour. I knew we were never going to get her back alive. Something in me just said, she's not going to come home alive. A witness finally came forward and told the police she had seen Bridger by the river, not half a mile from one of his listed houses. The white cottage, called Mount Pleasant, was on the outskirts of town. Not wasting a minute, police headed over and forced their way through the door. Former Detective Superintendent Reg Bevan recalls what they found inside.
1: So when the first officers arrive at Bridges' home, fire is lit. It is very hot in there. There is a strong smell of detergent, bleach, cleaning fluid. And the initial forensic examination then starts at that point. But it's clearly looking more and more suspicious that something has happened at that address.
0: Bridger was nowhere to be found, but just half an hour later, he was spotted by a patrol car heading back into Machinsleth on
1: foot. So when he is seen walking down the road, officers pull up alongside him and speak to him, confirm that it is Mark Bridger, and he immediately makes a disclosure to the officers that April is dead and that he's run over her by accident.
0: Without prompt, Bridger immediately told the police a story, that he had accidentally hit April with his car and had panicked.
2: He gave a very strange, fantastical description of what had really happened to April. I ran over her with my Land Rover, and she was underneath the wheels, and I didn't know what to do. And there was no pulse and uh, no sign, and she wasn't moving. And, um, well, any normal person, surely, would have rung the police or the hospital 999 at that instant, wouldn't they? Well, you see, I didn't know, and I didn't mean to, I mean, I was gonna just lean her up against something. Well, she wasn't lent up against something, she disappeared.
0: But as to where April's body was at that point, Bridger was light on the details. He seems to think that what's happened
3: is quite blurry, but what he does remember is that he drove off with her body somewhere. But after that, he says, it's all blank. I can't remember what happened.
0: Police arrested Bridger and took him to the station. As if suddenly compelled, Bridger went on a long-winded rant as they drove. I think
3: Mark Bridges' selfishness really did come out when he was picked up by the police and he, he said to them, I need to talk. And the police said, OK, but can you wait until we get to the station? And he didn't. He just proceeded to, to basically engage in this, this lengthy monologue about what had gone on about how he felt. And basically, when he was saying, I need to talk, he wasn't just saying that. He was saying, you need to listen to me. It was another way of him trying to exert control over other people. It's something he's always doing all of the time.
0: After the accident, Bridger claimed to have dropped off the Blue Land Rover at the repair garage. It had damage to the front fender that did suggest it had been in some sort of accident. But the repair garage said otherwise.
1: They didn't really disclose too much about his demeanour other than he dropped it off suggesting it had been involved in an accident um, and they were quite happy to have a look at it. And from what they'd seen, it didn't appear to have been involved in any kind of road accident.
0: Bridger's bizarre account led detectives to believe he had been lying about April's death. Former Detective Superintendent Reg Bevan says, for a brief time, they hoped Bridger's confusion meant she might still be alive.
1: So although when Mark is first detained, he says that he's killed her, he's run over her, we, we obviously hadn't found a body, so there's still some hope that you may be able to find her alive. So the thrust of searching as many places as possible and continuing to search the countryside didn't stop.
0: The next day, October 3rd, Coral Jones appeared in front of the press to make another appeal. Local reporter Kieran Jones remembers the tense atmosphere.
5: And so the atmosphere in the room awaiting that was quite extraordinary. And when the door opened, there was the briefest sense, I remember even now, of complete silence, complete shock, complete captivation almost. And as Coral walked into the room then, obviously, the noise began, the shutters of the cameras began to click. To see up close, merely a few feet away, somebody going through what Coral and and her family were going through was astonishingly painful.
1: When you see firsthand the impact it has on the family, you can only imagine what Coral and the rest of the family have gone through. But it's when you see them face to face and you're sitting next to them in some of those press conferences, it is heartbreaking and, you know, it just makes you more resolved to try to do all you can.
0: Police forensic teams searched Bridger's home for any evidence. And as little by little was revealed, it became more and more unlikely that April was still alive.
1: We do know from the detailed forensic examination of his home is that she probably died there. We found her blood at that address, significant amounts of her blood. Clearly, he'd attempted to clean the place, which is part of the reason the initial officers found that overwhelming smell of bleach. He'd tried to clean up several parts of the house. There was blood in the lounge and in the bathrooms. And the wood burner was lit, we believe, because he was looking to dispose of incriminating evidence. From
5: a policing and um, prosecution perspective, the key piece of evidence in in a murder inquiry is almost certainly going to be having a a body, and they didn't have that in this instance. So they were very, very reliant on, not just on the human witnesses that they had, which were, in in many cases, friends of April's who'd seen the the abduction take place, but incredibly up-to-date forensic technology, which enabled them to pinpoint fragments of bone found in the Woodburn at Mark Bridges' house.
1: Although there was bone, it was burnt to such a degree that we weren't able to match it forensically through any DNA profile, albeit we know it is human from the pathologist and the scientists that examined it subsequently. Along
0: with bits of bone in the burner, forensic teams also found a boning knife. And there was blood on the carpet in front of the burner. The hope that the Jones family had been holding on to began to wither away. For a while they were searching for
6: April and they were hoping she'd come back alive. And I think it was a couple of days later or something or other that it turned into a search for the body. And I kind of knew that it must have been some horrific crime for them to search into a body. And then in the sort of town we live in where there's rovers flowing through, there's forestry everywhere, I kind of knew it must have been something quite bad, otherwise you kind of would have found a child's body around the sort of area straight away.
5: There almost certainly was no longer any chance of a happy ending to this story, a positive outcome of April coming home to her family. And that was very, very powerful. And when you saw the tiredness that people understandably felt, two, three days of hard-working, searching, not going to sleep, to have everything that they'd worked for crushed in that way was deeply, deeply dispiriting for everybody. And it was clear quite quickly that there needed to be then that further little bit of perspective and of rowing back a little bit from the media and from everybody that was there just to give people, not just the family, but the people in the town that had been so affected, that little bit of space and that little bit of freedom to to grieve and to process everything that had
0: happened. After three days of questioning, Bridger was officially placed under arrest on suspicion of murder. Bridger continued to tout his innocence, claiming that April never stepped foot in his house. However, confronted by the forensic evidence, Bridger said he saw visions of April lying in front of the fireplace in his dreams, but his story otherwise stayed the
1: same. In interview, he's very matter-of-fact in his answers, and he says that he's run over her accidentally and that he gets out of his vehicle and sees that he's run over her, and he picks her up, and he thinks believes she's dead. He does try resuscitating her. But at each stage, when you're then able to rebut some of his story by saying, well, there's no forensic evidence to show that she's come to any harm in your vehicle, albeit we could put uh, her inside the vehicle with fingerprints, he would always suggest, well, she wasn't bleeding. So when you'd ask him, well, how do you know that she's dead then? You know, he was saying, yeah, well, I knew she was dead. Nothing that he said we could back up with any evidence or forensic recoveries. In fact, everything led quite the contrary. He had abducted April from outside near to her home and had driven her back to his house immediately. And she probably met her end very soon after that.
0: Accident or not, there was damning evidence of something more nefarious on Bridger's computer. Police unlocked his laptop and found that Bridger had an extensive collection of graphic adult pornography, but he also had a stockpile of explicit photos of young girls and children, often being abused by adults.
5: When you look at what was found on Bridger's laptop, there are a few ways that this case could have been more. Troubling When you see images of April Jones, it's clear that Bridger had this grotesque fascination with young girls, with those type of scenarios where young girls were abducted and killed. And that absolutely is
0: something that is condemning,
5: condemning evidence.
0: As they dug deeper, the collection only became worse, says Reg Bevan.
1: He'd also been looking at website reports of previous child abductions. And you're starting to build a picture now of a pedophile, a dangerous, evil man, who um, for whatever reason has gone from minor offending and tipped over into you know, the most serious crime.
0: Bridger also had several folders that appeared to have been taken from his neighbor's social media accounts. He had not only kept photos of strangers, but he had photos of local young girls, including April, and her three teenage half-sisters. Police were getting a clearer idea of Bridger's motivations and what might have happened to April.
4: There are two types of of people or offenders that would look at different kinds of things on the Internet. Uh, Pornography, for example. The first type is the people who will be satisfied by the photographs, by the films, by reading stories maybe. But at the end of it, that's it. It's like, that's good enough. They can turn off the computer and they forget about it. But there are certain other types, and Bridger falls into this category, is that at the end, that is not enough.
0: On October 6th, Mark Bridger was charged with the abduction and murder of five-year-old April Jones. The entire small town was in shock, but it was especially appalling to the Jones family. Not only were the girls friends with two of Bridger's daughters, but their families lived on the same estate as the Joneses. Bridger was a regular visitor to Brynagog. It's an absolute shock with it, and you don't know what to think. And then
6: you start, in your mind, questioning, do you really know someone, you know? You could have known this person, like, 15, 20 years, but... Then you come to the fact of do you really know them
2: and so the shock to the community and of course to april's parents to realize that not only were they living with but they knew the man who'd abducted their daughter is even more terrifying
0: bridger repeated his story that he had hit her with his car tried to revive her and forgotten where the body had gone he pled not guilty but said that he was partially responsible for whatever happened to her. With still no body, the search continued for seven more tense months. Investigators were still trying to piece together what had actually happened, but never found enough evidence. The search was officially called off on April 13, 2013.
1: The fact that no body was found didn't alter the course of the investigation. You know, we're still treating it as a murder. There's a huge impact on the family, obviously, but the search continued for for months and months afterwards because we had to be sure in that area that we'd searched everywhere we possibly could uh, in an effort to to find her. So although we're confident that she probably died in his house, what he's done with the body after that, um, only he knows.
0: On April 29th, the trial of Mark Bridger began at Mould Crown Court. He was charged with the abduction and murder of five-year-old schoolgirl April Jones. However, her body had never been found, so investigators were short on details of what exactly happened. There was hope, though, that the truth would emerge during the proceedings. Local journalist Kieran Jones and April's sister, Jasmine Jones, describe how Bridger looked as he took the stand.
5: I think from the very first moment that Mark Bridger appeared in court, he was a pathetic figure, somebody that appeared to be feeling sorry for himself, that almost couldn't realize the gravity of the situation in which he found himself. As though he somehow was the victim, when absolutely he wasn't. He was the offender. He was the person that had done this barbaric, inhuman thing.
6: He just kind of hung his head in shame. He never once looked over, ever, like not even a slight
0: glance of his eyes. Didn't move his head, just kind of hung his head in shame. Bridger pleaded not guilty. He gave the same account he'd given police when he was arrested, claiming that April's death was an accident.
5: Mark Bridger used this cloak of amnesia almost to say that he couldn't couldn't account for what had happened. He He accepted Um, that he was behind April's death, but not that he intended in some way to kill her, and it concocted this fanciful story about potentially having knocked her over with his car, something that was never borne out in any of the evidence, somehow claiming that he then couldn't recall what he'd done with her body, that he was drinking lots and that the whole thing could have been a nightmare. This was someone that was prepared to go as low as they possibly could, desperately trying to save their own skin in view of all evidence to the contrary.
6: So, at the beginning, I was kind of shocked, like, oh, he'd hit her off the bike, but she knows well, too well, not to go near the road when there's a car. She knows this really well, and she knows to look left and right and everything. We've always, always taught her from a young age. And then he started saying he panicked, and he just drove off with her, and you'd kind of, He's got kids around her age, around April's age, so you kind of think, you wouldn't panic. You'd kind of, in a sense, as a parent, you'd know what to do. So towards the end of it, you're just like, oh, shut up. Just, just
0: shut up, really. You're just making yourself look a fool. But the crux of the argument was that Bridger had no memory of what happened to April's body after he allegedly put her in his car. He claimed he was so panicked that he acted on instinct... But during the trial, police helicopter footage emerged from the morning after April's abduction. It showed Bridger looking calm and casual, says forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley.
3: He's seen kind of casually out walking his dog as if nothing had happened. And I think what we've got here is somebody who's who's struggling to figure out what is the appropriate way to behave here? What are people going to be looking out for? What are they going to be expecting to see?
1: Most normal people would look up at the helicopter and wonder what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly what he'd done with April and at that stage, you know, the net was closing in on him and he was he was trying to blend in.
0: And in a key moment of the trial, on May 15th, the jury got a look at what was on Bridger's laptop.
1: Bridger
2: had begun to assemble a collection of particularly nasty child pornography, as well as photographs of local children, including April and her elder sister. At his trial, the prosecution made a considerable play of the fact that these images were on his computer and suggested that he may not have been seeking specifically to groom April. It could have been another member of the family or another of the girls that were on his uh, computer.
0: It didn't take long after that to make a decision. On May 30th, the jury unanimously found Mark Bridger guilty of murdering April Jones. It only took them four hours. Judge Mr. Justice Griffith-Williams sentenced Bridger to life imprisonment with a whole life order. He was immediately sent to Wakefield Prison, where he will be for the rest of his life. For them to turn around and say, life,
6: and never to be released from prison is like, wow. Wow. It's just, you can't explain the feeling of it because it's good that he's never going to be released from prison and he's never going to be able to hurt anyone again.
3: Well, when Bridger was sentenced, the judge referred to him as a pathological liar and a a paedophile, and I think both of those descriptions are accurate. Mark Bridger was somebody who was very comfortable in a lie. He would lie as easily as he would breathe. And if you look at some of his behavior in the final months before April's death, he was collecting images of children on his, his laptop. He was engaging in behavior that was incredibly bizarre. So he was a pathological liar. He was a paedophile. He was a very
0: dangerous man. Back in Makhinsleth, the community was finally able to mourn April Jones. The tragic event not only ruined the lives of her family, but of many in the town. Bridger was someone they lived and worked beside. Someone they thought they all knew, but they were dismally wrong.
5: The Jones family were very clearly a, a respectable family people that were well known in their community and there was that shock element, this could be anyone's child, it wasn't somebody that was put in harm's way it was a girl that was playing on her bike outside her home with her parents blessing, like she would every day they would call her in for a dinner she would sit at home and tell them about her day at school and how well she was doing everyone can identify with that, whether they have children or not it's a brutal thing that rips out a family's heart and that really really touches people
6: there was people that we hadn't spoken to who had little kids around the same age and they were really affected on the estate we live kids were outside all the time playing and then you didn't see a kid for two years outside playing
0: mark bridger never revealed what happened to april's body
3: I think that the key question for many people in this case is will Mark Bridger ever give up the information about what happened to April Jones, about where she is, um, to, to enable her, her parents to to basically say goodbye to her properly? And unfortunately, I don't think he will. I think Mark Bridger is somebody who will always have self-preservation as his number one priority. And he's just simply not going to to put himself in a position where he's got no power left.
6: It's difficult. Not getting a body back, because when you have a body back, you can lay them to rest, you can say your goodbyes. But when you've got bone fragments and ash, it's not, it's not the same at all. Because you can't say your final goodbyes. And Mark Bridge is such a pathological liar, and he believes his own lies. He believes he's telling the truth that he's, he's never going to tell you, he's never going to say what really happened that day, that evening, and what he's done with the body. And you kind of have to come to terms with that, and you kind of have to accept that you're never going to be able to fully say goodbye, and you're never going to be able
0: to fully lay April to rest. On November 17th, 2014, Jasmine Jones stood alongside her parents and watched as the Mount Pleasant cottage, where her sister likely was murdered, was bulldozed to the ground. You've changed, you've completely changed. You're never
6: going to be who you were. I mean, when I have kids, I could be completely different to what I thought I was going to be because of this event. You've just completely changed. You're never going to be who you were. And the demons you've had to fight along the way is, they've changed you, be it for the better, be it for the worse. But the positive thing is, we've come out stronger. We've come out, we've stood together through it all.
5: Because the community have gathered around and been so positive in the face of such a grotesque crime. It's not been something that's been allowed to define them. April Jones is not remembered for how she died, but for being a beautiful young girl who was happiest in her community and in her family. So what happened to her will always be a part of the history of McUncluth. That will never be laid to rest or put to one side. But the fact that people do not want to be defined by this, do not want to be remembered purely as the place where this act of evil happened, will mean that they can go on and they can grow and they can develop.
0: What Makes a Killer is an audio boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Notoso. The series is produced by Audio Booms Lauren Bogle, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Creggi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. We'd love if you could leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, in April 1991... Four children mysteriously died in a hospital in Lincolnshire and 13 had come down with a strange illness. They'd developed symptoms very different from what they had been checked in for.
2: One of my detective sergeants at Grantham contacted me to say that he'd had a call from Grantham Hospital which suggested that they'd had a high number of collapses of children which may or may not be down to some criminal act.
0: They all had one thing in common they all had the same nurse, and she would soon be known as the Angel of Death.